studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and around here, it's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. In theory, at least. In actual practice, though, what generally ends up happening is that with every new episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, it's a pretty safe bet that whatever it is I'm going to be talking about it's probably a comic book. Believe it or not, I didn't actually plan it that way. That's just the way that things ended up working out. And as it goes for today, I'm going to be talking about Batman number 251. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is actually a pretty important Batman story in the greater scheme of things. And the reason for that is because this not only marks the return of the Joker to Batman comics, this not only marks the return of a more murderous Joker to Batman comics, but if I'm not much mistaken, this comic is the very first time that the, that the Joker has ever been portrayed as criminally insane. So... Another way of looking at it is, at this point, for the mathematical majority of the Joker's publishing history, he's been portrayed as a complete fucking maniac, right? But believe it or not, there was a time when something like that was actually kind of a, uh, an innovation, one might say. So, anyway, just, I don't know, I thought that was kind of some interesting trivia, but perhaps your actual mileage varies. But either way though, today's subject is Batman number 251. Cover price is 20 cents. Cover date is September 1973. Title is Joker's Five-Way Revenge. Writer is Dennis O'Neill. <clears throat> Cover is by Neil Adams. Penciler is Neil Adams. Inker is Neil Adams. Colorist is Tom Zayuko. 
and editor is Julius Schwartz. It was a dark and stormy night in Gotham City, and Commissioner Gordon is investigating a crime scene and just wondering what the fuck is taking Batman so long to get there. Batman appears out of nowhere and bites Gordon's head off, saying he's been there for ten whole minutes without Gordon even noticing. Rather than arrest Batman for his insolence, Gordon tells him that a murder has taken place on the outskirts of town. Even though Batman's been there for ten minutes, he apparently didn't have time to check on little things like that. The victim is Jack Barton, who's not only dead, but is also wearing a ghastly grin, along with a Joker playing card. So it seems likely that the Joker has killed him. That or else his, t his team won the Stanley Cup and he died a happy man, but that seems less likely somehow. The Batman leaves the crime scene, saying Gordon can do whatever he wants, but he, Batman, will investigate all of this bullshit himself because the official methods are going to be too slow to prevent further deaths. Now, I'm going to put this little summary on pause here and say the comic never comes right out and says so, but it's pretty clear, at least to me, that the only reason Gordon didn't blow Batman's head off at that moment is because he doesn't believe in shooting a man in the back. Anyway, back into the summary. The Batman realizes the Joker recently escaped from the hospital for the criminally insane. This was before Arkham Asylum had an official designated name, you see. The Batman figures the Joker has a grudge against the former members of his gang. Or... Maybe they all owe him money from that whole Stanley Cup victory thing, but that seems less likely somehow. So anyway, the Batman tries to bring former gang member Packy White, who's now a janitor at a local boxing gym, under police protection. After a sparring match, Packy's convinced to go along with the Batman's help. He drinks some water to wash the taste of Batman's knuckles away when he suddenly falls backwards with the Joker's grisly grin upon his face. But hey, Gordon's methods are too slow to prevent further deaths, right Batman? The Joker takes out another member of his old criminal gang with an exploding cigar filled with nitroglycerin. Gordon, meanwhile, sat in his office skull-fucking Batman shouting, Who's too slow now, motherfucker? Anyway, after the skull-fucking, the Batman tracks down and tries to help another former member of the Joker's gang, that is to say, Bigger Melvin. The Batman then, try, then voices his theory that the reason the Joker's trying to kill all of his previous henchmen is because they all have retarded names. That or there is the whole Stanley Cup theory, but that seems less likely somehow. Suddenly... Bigger smacks the Batman upside the head and he falls unconscious. When he comes to, he finds Melvin hanging dead from the rafters and then gets knocked unconscious again from behind by the Joker. The Joker considers killing the Batman for a second, but then decides that Batman's too slow to prevent further deaths. Gordon, meanwhile, is still sitting in his office laughing hysterically. Regaining consciousness later on, the Batman heads for the, for the last uh, member of the Joker's gang a man called Benz Hooley, the forger at the home for the aged, and yet another henchman with yet another retarded name. The Batman soon discovers that Hooley was taken out earlier that day by Mr. Genesius. The Batman quickly realizes that Mr. Genesius is the Joker, 
Yes, Robin. The only possible explanation. Quick, to the Batmobile. We haven't one moment to lose. Later, while rubbing his head after the Joker's attack and Gordon's skull-fucking, the Batman finds crude oil and sand on his chin and figures out the location of the Joker's hideout. There's only one place where you can find sand and crude oil. If you thought the answer to that was a mechanic shop on the beach, you're wrong, you fool! It can only be an abandoned aquarium on the outskirts of town in the abandoned aquarium district. Arriving on the scene, the Batman finds the Joker holding a, a, a control to lower Hooli, who's still sitting in his wheelchair, into a tank with a great white shark with laser beams attached to its head. The Joker and the Batman make a deal to spare Hooli and put Batman in the tank with the shark instead. After the Batman gets pushed into the tank, the Joker says fuck it and tosses Hooli in too because evil. Soon, the Batman frees himself from his chains, defeats the shark, and then uses Hooli's wheelchair to break the glass tank. Because that's easier than grabbing Hooli and swimming to the surface, I guess. Seriously though, Batman's kind of fucking retarded in this story. Anyway, the Batman then chases after the Joker, who probably would have gotten away if he hadn't slipped on the oil-slicked beach. Moral of the story? Pollution is awesome, kids. In spite of thinking to himself that he can't reach full speed, the Batman quickly overtakes the Joker anyway. Which can only mean the Joker must run like a granny or something. Catching up quickly, the Batman puts the Joker down with one punch. One. Punch. Later, Gordon and the rest of GCPD take turns skull-fucking Batman. If we only saved one out of five victims, we'd all be fired, loser. The. End. So, what did I think? Well, kidding aside, guys, I, I gotta say, this is one of probably the most iconic Batman covers of all time. And for those of you who've never seen... Well, actually, you know what? I find it hard to believe that nobody has ever... Or rather, that somebody hasn't seen this cover at least once or twice before. It's basically a sort of a, a panoramic of Gotham City with a giant Joker standing on top of it. He's holding a giant playing card, and it looks like he's slamming it into Batman and just swinging him around and all this stuff. And when you think about it, this is a kind of nonsensical cover because nothing like this even remotely comes close to happening in the story. This doesn't really seem to symbolize anything. It just doesn't really explain or hint at very much of this story at all, apart from the fact that the Joker's back. And so when you think about it on paper, there's really no reason why this this cover should be as iconic and famous as it is. But it is. So, the only thing I can really figure is that Neil Adams' rep is such that pretty much any semi-cool Batman cover he's ever drawn is always going to have a certain amount of interest to it, certain amount of cachet. And speaking of Neil Adams, I decided I, I'd do a quick little head count here and just try to figure out what exactly this is all about. Unless I'm missing something, Neil Adams drew nine issues of Batman, nine issues of The Brave and the Bold, and eight issues of Detective Comics. So, basically, 
his entire rep with Batman comes from, at least in the 70s, his entire rep with Batman comes from 26 issues. Few of which are actually contiguous with one another. Usually there's at least one issue in between uh, uh, one Neil Adams credit and the next. Not always, but usually there's at least there's at least one fill-in artist in between. As a matter of fact, I think you could actually fairly accuse Neil Adams of being the fill-in uh, artist in many cases. That's not totally true with The Brave and the Bold, but damned if that's not true of Batman and Detective Comics. So I think it would be fair to question where exactly does Neil Adams' rep come from? And the simple fact of the matter is that he's just really fucking good at what he does. Now, I think some of this sort of comes down to the Watchmen effect, right? Which is basically what I call growing up in the aftermath of a revolution. And when you look back at the revolutionary work, it seems less revolutionary somehow because of the fact that all the comics that you're reading are in some way or another kind of derivative of that revolutionary work. So the revolutionary work isn't really as powerful as it used to be, right? And the, ex the example I always come back to is Watchmen, which, guys, that's a good comic. It holds up. I enjoy it. But I grew up in an era and came of age on comics that were all post-Watchmen. And so as a result, Watchmen doesn't hit home the same way for me, the way that it did audiences when it first came out. It's just as simple as that. And there's, an, a, there's a sort of more limited extent to which I think the same can kind of be said of Neil Adams on Batman. You know, I grew up on the likes of Norm Brayfogle, Graham Nolan, Latter-day Jim Apero, all of which had some amount of Neil Adams influence. Apero maybe less so, but those other two and God knows other other pencilers, they all sort of filtered their work in some way or another through the lens of of Neil Adams. And so as a result, I think a very strong case can be made that Neil Adams's work on Batman is just never going to mean as much to me as it does to others. And I'm not saying that his work is bad. I'd never make that argument. But there was a sort of quality to his work, a kind of dynamic energy that I think was more apparent to contemporaneous audiences than it is to me about 40 or 45 years after the fact. You understand? Anyway, so like I say... Don't take any of this as a slam on Neil Adams because it's not meant to be. I'm just saying that his work doesn't hit as home doesn't hit home as much for me as it does the generation that grew up on Neil Adams's work. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. All right. So don't send me any nasty emails or anything like that. Now, I guess to get into the story proper or the comic book proper, I mean, page one in its own weird kind of way is almost a second cover, and that's very much standard operating procedure in comics at this time that page one 
was sort of a splash page that could serve as a second cover because it may well have to be the cover because of scams and things that people were pulling at the time where they'd cut off the cover and then send that back to the publisher so they could get a refund on comics that, in fact, they were selling. So anyway, it wasn't unheard of. And so as a result, artists would typically have to come up with basically a second cover illustration uh, to serve as page one in case the actual cover was missing. And guys, this is, in a weird kind of way, this is almost like, it's it's not quite as strong an image as as the actual cover. And I think the reason for that is because when you come right down to it, this is really just the Joker driving a car, right? But this is still a really fucking powerful image. And, you know, if this was something, you know, like if it was the Joker just standing around looking out a window and the background was black, then I actually do think this would be... This would actually be a, a better illustration than what's on the cover. But something about the fact that you know he's driving a car here, I don't know why, but that just doesn't... Eh, I don't know. It's the 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 fact that you can see the steering wheel and there's not... The, the background is a little bit more abstract as opposed to being completely blank or just whatever. There's something about this that just takes it down a notch, you know? So it's not quite as good as the cover image, but it's still really fucking good. It's just not quite cover quality is what I'm saying. But it's rainy, it's dark outside, it's storming, and, you know, you can actually picture the Joker just sitting around in his, uh, sitting around in his car, and he's probably, uh, you know, laughing at the top of his lungs because he's, you know, his little five-way revenge plan is now underway. And this is just a really powerful image, I think. And the caption boxes uh, read, From the darkness of a country road somewhere north of Gotham City, and from the greater dark of a past filled with evil, comes a terrifyingly familiar face. Thunder racks the earth, and lightning scars the sky, and wetness streams from the clouds like tears of mourning. It's as though nature itself were weeping. And well it might be, for there is death abroad this night. The Joker's five-way revenge. And, you know, just like over-the-top pulpy caption boxes like that, narration captions, you just don't get those in comics anymore. Everything has to be like this sort of third-wave, uh, Frank Miller-ish type of internal monologue where the the character has to have these sort of flowery internal monologues. And we do get a little bit of internal monologue in this story, but that's not necessarily what drives the action, you know? And I just can't help thinking this is actually the better way to structure a comic book, you know? So, I don't know. Not everything needs to be first person, guys. I'm just saying. As a matter of fact, you know, the older I get, the more I kind of start thinking first person, that's a crutch. You know, that's what writers do when they need to simplify their task because they just don't have the chops to do what they're doing. You know, I mean, the older I get, that's just the way that I the way that I view it. So I don't know. I mean, you got to be really, really good 
to make first person work in a way that doesn't come off as hammy or, or anything like that. Or, or I'll just say it, guys. Just fucking lazy, you know? So, anyway. So, you get into uh, page two here, and there's a sort of panoramic shot of the Gotham City waterfront as the police are investigating the murder, and the bat signal is flashing in the background. And this is one of those things that it makes for a good image, but it's kind of illogical if you think about it, because if the police want Batman's help, why are they shining the, the bat signal in the sky? Because what that's going to do is send him to police headquarters, which is where he needs to not be. He needs to be there at the waterfront. So what the fuck? And it's one of those things that it's a good image. Just don't think about it too much, you know? So anyway, now I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time that we've seen the Joker portrayed as a killer in quite a while. And I also think this is the first time that we've seen the return of the Joker's uh, Joker serum that would basically kill people and then give them that, that scary looking smile. And Neil Adams has said on more than one occasion, he said that he kind of viewed it as his mandate to somewhat kind of sort of maybe in a way bring back the the golden the early golden age batman you know the more bill finger bob kane style batman and so what he wanted to do i mean assuming that was his that was his agenda you know assuming that's what he wanted to do then sooner or later you're going to have to bring back the joker and he's going to have to kill some people you know it's as simple as that i mean that is probably the clearest mission statement you could probably make in terms of the fact that you're trying to darken this character again, bring him back to his roots. And there's a little bit of a contradiction there in as much as Batman in the early onset of the Golden Age, he didn't necessarily think twice about taking a human life. If that was the most expedient way to achieve his ends, he was ready, willing, and able to do that. Whereas... The Neil Adams, and I would say the general Bronze Age Batman, I'm at a real loss to think of any time that he ever took life. He may never have done it, but if he did, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just not thinking of it, you know? And to me, that seems a little bit hypocritical that you want to return this character to what you view as his glory days, except for the stuff that you disagree with, you know? And I... I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I, look, I don't want this to sound like I'm looking down my nose at Denny O'Neill because I'm not, but it just seems a little hypocritical somehow, you know, that you want to take the character back to a direction that you're more comfortable with on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're not going the whole nine yards with it, you know? Now, for those of you who don't know, because they say that every episode of somebody's podcast could theoretically be somebody else's first episode... For those of you who don't know, I don't view Batman's code against killing as an absolute. I mean, at the very most, I view that as more of an ideal. That's something that Batman strives toward. But if the only way he can achieve his ends is if 
basically somebody has to die. I think that's some that's a decision Batman is prepared to make, you know? He wouldn't necessarily do that for some random purse snatcher or bank robber or something like that. But for somebody like the Joker, yeah, I don't think Batman would lose a bit of sleep over killing the Joker. You know, this is a guy who's a clear and present danger, literally to everybody around him, you know? I don't think Batman would have a moment's hesitation in snuffing out the Joker's life, and he'd sleep like a baby later that night, you know? But that doesn't work for Denny O'Neill for some reason, so we don't see that in the story. And again, I don't want that to sound as sarcastic as it probably does. I'm just saying that it doesn't really make sense to me that somebody who takes every single other aspect of criminal investigation and even punishment at times is going to just fucking arbitrarily draw the line at taking life. I can't convince myself that he'd do that. Superman, I can absolutely buy that. I mean, maybe, maybe Superman might wipe out Bizarro or he might wipe out uh, dark side or mongol or somebody like that superman might take life if it's a truly fucking existential threat to literally the entire world then yeah superman might do that you know he views like batman he views taking life as an ideal that he should strive toward on the one hand but on the other hand you know superman made fundamentally the right decision in whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, whenever he took Mixes Pitalik's life. Or, here's another one, he, he made the right decision in Superman number 22, whenever he killed the Kryptonian uh, villains, the Phantom Zone escapees. He made the right decision. And yes, even in Man of Steel, again, Superman made the right decision when he broke Zod's neck. You know, those were decisions that only he could make. Those are actions that only he could take. You know, and I think that, you know, it would probably bother Superman on some level. But if it was a truly existential threat, if worse ever truly came to worst, Superman would do it. He'd hate it. He would never want to do it again. It might bother him for the rest of his life, but he'd do it. Batman, actually, before we get into Batman, Superman he would reserve that for the truly dangerous, for the truly lethal, you know? This isn't something that he would dish out to, like Batman, he wouldn't dish that out to uh, purse snatchers or bank robbers or car thieves or anything like that, because there's a criminal justice system that's ready, willing, able, and eager to prosecute people like that. They don't need Superman to take care of those people for them. Superman can capture them, and then the legal system can take it from there. Same thing with Batman, you know, but the difference with Batman is that, number one, I think he would kill the Joker, and unlike Superman, I don't think Batman would be at all put out over that. I think Batman, he wouldn't necessarily be happy that he did it, but he wouldn't think twice about doing it, and he wouldn't, it wouldn't bother him all that much having done it. He would do it, and then that would be the end of it, period. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't really think about it again. This isn't something that would keep him up at night, you know? As far as he's concerned, he did society a favor, you know? And 
what I'm saying is, you know, these characters having these ideals, it's all well and good, but I don't view those rules as being absolute. I can envision circumstances where those rules necessarily have to go out the window in order to serve a higher good. I mean, I don't think anybody is going to necessarily have a whole lot of respect for Superman if the only way he could have stopped Mongul is by killing him, and so Superman didn't kill him, and so Mongul fucking blew up planet Earth. I don't think Superman necessarily would have done the right thing, and I don't think anybody listening to this would assume that Superman had done the right thing either. You know, so there's a time and a place to rise above principle. And I think that there are fewer circumstances where Superman would be willing to do that, and in those few circumstances, he wouldn't be happy about it, and probably would bother him for the rest of his life. But I do believe that, on some level, Batman and Superman both are capable of making that decision. And that, to kind of bring it all back, is sort of the big gripe I've always had with the Bronze Age Batman, because of the fact that you get to the point where Batman is, on some level or another, morally fucking culpable for what the Joker does next. Because Batman could have ended the Joker at any fucking time, and he's always chosen not to do it. And it's always innocent people who pay the price for that. You know, and you get to the point where, you know what? Batman, you're not a hero anymore. You're an enabler, you know? So... Anyway, that's that stuff. And that maybe is a good reason why you shouldn't let the Joker go too far with these things. You know, you should always keep the Joker in his lane. It's okay to kill people, but it shouldn't ever get too out of control. So, anyway. Before I move on to the next page, though, um, this is page two, panel four. I just like the way Batman is drawn in this panel. There's really no deeper meaning to it or anything like that. I just think it looks really fucking cool. So, anyway... Moving on, what we're, uh, we, we get over to page three and then into page, uh, pages four and five where Batman has that sparring match with Packy White. And basically you have... Uh, Packy took a couple of cheap shots on Batman and then, you know, they just abandoned all pretenses. Packy is attacking Batman at this point, so Batman defends himself. Now, if this was a Batman comic today... Batman would probably take Packy down using Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but this was before Batman was uh, a world-renowned martial artist, and so he just uh, takes Packy down using boxing skills, it looks like, you know? Batman is a pretty good boxer, and so he takes Packy out. Not He doesn't take him down, but he, ba- he definitely asserts himself as the alpha male in the room. And... This, it's just, it's one of those differences between now and then, you know, if this comic came out today, Batman would have put Packy in a chokehold and then choked him out. This came out in the 70s, though, so Batman just punches Packy in the head a few times, and then that's the end of it, you know? And it's just, it's the difference between the way that P- Batman is portrayed in one era versus another, and the way that these things can change, you know? through, I would say, probably the majority of the 2000s and then the early, early, early 2010s. Batman basically used Casey, which is what we saw in the Chris Nolan Batman films. That was his fighting style in the comics, at least the ones that I remember best. It seems like he was always using Casey in those, in those, in those comics. And, you know, like 
more recently today, Batman comics look more like a UFC championship, you know? And so, I don't know. That's just the difference, I guess, between now versus 10 years, uh, 10 years ago versus 40 years ago, you know? So, it's just, my point is to say that Batman, it's just interesting to me how his fighting methods change, but the fact that he's a, an ass kicker par excellence, that's non-negotiable. He's always going to be an ass kicker. I just, I, I like that, you know? Another thing I kind of like, this is on page six, where the Joker uh, pays a visit to one of his other uh, former henchmen and blows his ass up with an exploding cigar. On the one hand, yeah, you know, the Joker uses a kind of clown method to kill this guy, you know, an exploding cigar. That's kind of funny to me. Um, but one of the things I kind of like is the fact that, you know, the Joker doesn't use any single method to kill his former henchman. He seems to change it up every time. And you get the idea. I mean, we're never shown how Dalton, the first victim, died. So we can't really say for sure, you know, what methods the Joker used there. But the Joker poisoned Packy White. He basically let Packy do himself in. And then here, the exploding cigar guy, the Joker actually ingratiates himself. He basically infiltrates on friendly terms. Hey, how's it going? Hey, yeah, you're looking great. Here, have a cigar. Boom! You know? And the Joker isn't killing these people the same way every single time. You know? And... When you think about it, it's kind of clever of Denny O'Neill to realize that if the Joker was determined to kill five people all in one night, he wouldn't necessarily use the same methods every single time. You know, he would, he'd mix it up. You know, maybe he'd use a machine gun for some people. Maybe he'd drop other people into a shark tank. Maybe he'd drown somebody else. You know, I mean, just go on and on and on with it. You know, it wouldn't always be the same thing every single time. And I just, to me, that's, that's a really, that's really perceptive of Denny O'Neill to, to pick up on that, you know? So anyway, it's just, it's well done is what I'm saying. This is a good comics. So I know I was all sarcastic and everything when I was going through uh, the synopsis and, you know, whatever. It's just the, the, the point of it is this really is a good comic and I really do enjoy it. So anyway. Elsewhere, we've got Batman cruising around in the Batmobile, and... Actually, you know what? I've got a little something something to say about the Batmobile, but I think I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that for later. So, anyway, moving right along here. Uh, Batman tracks down Bigger Melvin. Bigger Melvin gets the drop on him. The Joker gets the drop on Bigger... And Batman comes to, and it actually, I, guys, I gotta be honest, this is one of those times in the story where Batman is made to look sort of ineffectual, you know, because first what happens is somebody that Batman has no business trusting gets the drop on him, and then the Joker gets the drop on Batman when Batman should have been on his guard, and... I don't know. I mean, I don't like the idea of Batman being written as sort of like this infallible bat god on the one hand. 
On the other hand, though, I mean, Batman would necessarily be on his guard whenever he broke into to Bigger Melvin's apartment. I don't think it should be this easy for the Joker to get the drop on Batman. Now, it needs to be this way because the, the Joker has to give Batman, he has to accidentally give Batman a clue as to the location of his hideout. And I guess this was the best way that O'Neill could think of to do it, you know? So, fine. But I'm just saying that it makes the Batman look kind of weak to get taken down twice in two pages, you know? So, put a pencil to it, I suppose. One of the other things, though, is that this is on uh, page 11. The Joker hits, uh, page 11, panel 2, the Joker hits the Batman, like, right in the back of his neck. Now, guys, I'm not a doctor, although I play one on TV. But, uh, you know, guys, I'm not a doctor, but... If you hit somebody, like, in the back of the neck like that, that's a rabbit punch, guys. I mean, they could die. You could kill somebody doing that. You know, now, the Joker kicks the Batman in the chin in the next panel. And I don't know, basically, the way that it's drawn, I don't think that's necessarily, a, you know, a lethal, uh, a, a lethal kick. But that punch to the back of Batman's neck could have killed him. You know, if you don't, I mean, it's one of those times in life when, you know, guys, I don't know if you guys know this, but that's, you know, one of the reasons why that's an illegal strike, you know, an illegal punch in uh, boxing is because if you hit somebody in the back of the neck hard enough and if you hit them in the right spot, you could paralyze them, you could, you could kill them. I mean, any number of things could possibly happen from this. And so I don't know that... Uh, Neil Adams was necessarily aware of that whenever he drew this. But if he was, again, it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, this isn't, you know, the 1960s or the 1950s, um, you know, Dick Sprang Joker. This is a Joker who's moving in for the kill. You know, this is a Joker who's not to be fucked with, you know. And one of the th reasons that this kind of that this kind of works for me is, you know, it intentionally or not. It basically, you know, spells out, you know, what exactly the Joker's up to here in terms of always moving in for the kill, always, you know, coming after uh, Batman and or for that matter, whoever. And he's not necessarily coming with with uh, kid gloves, you know. So um, I don't know. I mean, this is just and, and this, you know, also, I, I it just needs to be said that this is a a, a really well drawn panel, you know, um, by Neil Adams. And I don't know if, I mean, I, I am, believe me, I am not an expert on, uh, Neil Adams's, you know, body of work by any stretch. So I don't know if, you know, him inking his own work is, uh, you know, standard operating procedure form or what, but, you know, I would say that really his, his work all through this comic is, it's just really well done. So, Assuming he doesn't usually ink his own work, he probably should, I guess is the point. So, anyway, so to finally get back into the, uh, into the story, though. So, J the Joker has his moment of realization, and what he decides is, you know what, I could step on the Batman's neck, but that would kill him, and I realize now that's not really what I want, so I'm heading out. And so he leaves. Batman wipes a little bit of crude oil and some sandy shit off of his 
off of his head and he realizes this is really the first major clue he's gotten as to where the Joker might be headed. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just, just a second, actually. But for right now, on page 13, this is panel three. The background here, I've talked about this sort of thing a few times with John M. Wilson, where the background appears to be a photograph and it's been uh, altered in some way so that it looks kind of sort of drawn, but it's not really drawn. I really like this effect, and I think, you know, I I would actually have liked to have seen more of this in in comics, because if you think about it, I mean, it's got to save the artist a fair amount of time if they can just take a picture of something and then use that as the background, and then, you know, somebody in editorial can figure out, you know, how to combine it all together. And it's just, it's it's a neat effect, and I always like it when it happens. And then... And then also on that same page, uh, page 13, panel 4, Batman basically has this sort of moment of realization, and that's the face he's making. He, holy shit, I figured it out. I know what this is, what, what this all means, and I know where to find the Joker. You know, like, he's making that face. And, you know, damned if that's not the face that he's making. I mean, you know, you've seen that look a thousand times on a thousand people's face, you know, that sort of moment where, you know, that sort of that dawn of comprehension. And that's the face that Batman is making here. You know, it's just a really well done panel. This again is uh, just another neat little moment in this panel. So then at the bottom of page 13, Batman says, One area where the Joker could have picked up that particular mixture, crude petroleum and sand, and it's a spot made to order for him. Lonely, isolated, perfect. And, you know, I realize that doing real detective work in these comics, especially comics that are... Sometimes the most they have to work with is 16 pages. That can be a pretty tall order you know, to do real detective work in that span. But, you know, this idea of of there's only one place where you can find blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just, it's fucking retarded. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's tired. It's a cliche. It's a crutch. It's, I don't know, whatever. It's, it's, it's something. It's something. I don't know. It's, uh, so anyway, whatever. I mean, again, I'm not trying to criticize Denny O'Neill. I don't want you to think that I am. It's just little things like that. Maybe it was less of a tired cliche, you know, back in uh, uh, back in uh, 1973 when this comic book came out. You know, maybe it just wasn't it wasn't the cliche then that it is now. But it's just now it it's just kind of tired. That's the point. Now, excuse me while I take a drag off of my e-cig here. All right, so, page 14. There's this kind of Jaws moment uh, in the last panel. Batman basically shines a light 
in the darkness and finds uh, inside the Joker's hideout, he sees uh, the Joker and the camera, quote unquote, is positioned in such a way that a display case showing the jaws of a shark has the Joker inside. And it's just this sort of jaws moment of the issue where you kind of get a little bit of foreshadowing as to what's to come. But this is vi visual foreshadowing, right? And I don't know. It's on the one hand, I mean, I kind of recognize the Jaws reference that's being made here in one sense. In the other sense, though, it's just fucking cool. This is another just really cool looking Neil Adams panel. And it it plays for me is what I'm saying. I just it's really well done, especially because the Joker looks all creepy and shit just standing around in the darkness like that. So anyway, so from here, Batman makes probably the stupidest deal he, he could have possibly made. I mean, why would you try cutting a deal with the Joker? Why would you try negotiating with him? You know he's not going to honor his word. Why would you trust him, you know? So anyway, then after that comes the sequence where you pretty much have to believe that Batman is more powerful than a fucking great white shark, which... Actually, you know what? Now, I was just thinking, this can't possibly be a Jaws moment, can it? Because Jaws hadn't even fucking come out yet. Jaws didn't come out until 1975. This comic came out in 1973, so... Wow. That only just occurred to me. Sorry, guys. I, I guess I missed something in my interpretations here. But anyway, basically what we're supposed to believe, though, is that Batman can overpower a full-size fucking shark. And no. No, I, 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 can, I, I can believe a lot of things. I can believe that Batman can jump off a building and swing around on zip lines and all this stuff. He can do all that without getting himself killed. I can believe that. I cannot believe that Batman can overpower a fucking shark, okay? It's just fucking not possible, okay? You know, people say, well, you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. No, actually, I'm not supposed to suspend my disbelief. Neil Adams, not Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill is supposed to suspend my disbelief for me. That's not my job. That's the writer's job. The writer's supposed to facilitate a process whereby the reader can banish all of his doubts, all of his skepticism, and can believe whatever it is that's presented to him. That's not my job to do that. That, by definition, is the writer's job. And there are no circumstances where I could ever believe Batman can overpower a fucking shark. Okay? Now, if Batman had set up, set off some kind of, like if he had some kind of, um, I don't know, like some kind of a capsule or something like that in his utility belt, that he could just cram it down the, the shark's throat, poison him, and then use that to kill the shark... That I can believe. Or if he had some other, call it bat shark repellent, or if he had something like that, hey, fucking works for me, all right? What I cannot believe in a million fucking years is that Batman is more physically powerful than a shark, okay? It's fucking impossible. I don't believe it. So anyway, again, not trying to insult Denny O'Neill, because I really do enjoy this story, but I do have some quibbles with it, is what I'm saying. So anyway. So Batman smashes through the, the aquarium rather than swimming to the surface and climbing out of it. So, hmm. 
And then he chases the Joker down on the beach and pretty much takes the Joker down with... Honestly, I joked about the one punch thing when I was doing the the synopsis. I don't really know if that's accurate because the Joker takes a swing at the Batman and it's like the Batman does some kind of a judo thing, uh, spins around and then elbows the Joker to the head to knock him off balance, spins back around and then punches him one time to the chin and then, you know, lays him out that way, you know? And so anyway, but, um, wow. Okay. I guess I thought that we were going to see the Batmobile at the end of the story because there was something I wanted to mention about the Bat. Well, fucking whatever. It doesn't matter. Basically, I'm pretty sure that the Batmobile in this era is a Corvette Stingray. So, whatever. Anyway, that's basically what I had to say about it. So, but that's kind of irrelevant here because fucking there's no Batmobile around. Now, before I close this whole thing out, page 21 shows Batman sprinting across the beach. And as far as I can tell, this is probably... This isn't the most iconic Batman uh, illustration in all of history, but it's probably in the top 10. And it's probably the single most iconic Batman drawing that Neil Adams has ever done. You know, Uh, Batman is thinking to himself, the night has taken its toll on me. The blows to the head, the battle in the aquarium. I can't get up to full speed and he has a big head start. So, and it's Batman, he's sprinting across the desert, uh, not the desert, I'm sorry, the beach, and there's this huge, giant fucking full moon in the background, and I guess these are seagulls or something zipping around in the background, but the way they're drawn, they could also be bats. If you want them to be bats, then they are bats. And this is just a really fucking cool drawing. And, you know, one of the things that, I kind of hoped for from Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice that obviously ended up never happening. But one of the things I, w- I-, I was kind of hoping for is that, you know, Zack Snyder has that kind of stylized um, approach to shooting these comic book movies. And one of his favorite little tricks is, you know, copious amounts of slow motion. And I thought, you know, there's got to be some type of opportunity somewhere in the movie to show Batman running in slow motion in a way that sort of emulates this panel. And obviously it never happened, and I don't think the movie's necessarily the better for that, but it's not necessarily the worse for that either. Just going into the thing, I thought, it's not that I thought it would really happen, I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if, you know? But fucking obviously never happened. And at this point, I guess there's no reason to think that it ever will, at least not by Zack Snyder. So... Anyway, no real deeper meaning to that. I just want to throw that out there. So, anyway, that, I think, is basically it as far as, you know, this issue is concerned. Now, for those interested, this comic book was actually reprinted in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. And probably it's, I would imagine it's probably been reprinted in other Joker, not other Joker. It's been, uh, it's probably been reprinted in other in other uh, collections as well. I mean, there's, it seems like there's a new Neil Adams collection coming out every month. So there's no way it's not going to be included in one of those. And so I guess my point is 
There are tons of ways to get your hands on this story, not least of which is buying the original friggin' comic, but there are tons of ways to get your hands on this on this story, so there's that. The other thing is, the ending of this story was partially adapted in an episode of Batman the Animated Series, The Laughing Fish. Basically, the first half, or actually maybe the first really two-thirds of that episode, The Laughing Fish, is a pretty faithful adaptation of the comic book story, The Laughing Fish, up to a point. After which, the Joker captures uh, Harvey Bullock and has him imprisoned in an aquarium, and then Batman has to come to the rescue, and he has to, you know, dive into the aquarium to save Bullock, and then from there, it's a it's very similar structurally to the Joker's five-way revenge. So the first two-thirds of the episode, The Laughing Fish, is actually a pretty faithful retelling of the comic book story, The Laughing Fish, up to a point, and then it becomes sort of a, not an adaptation, really, but more of like a riff on the Joker's five-way, uh, five-way revenge, and specifically the ending of the Joker's five-way revenge. Just substitute Hooli with Detective Bullock, and then there you go. So <sighs> Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it uh, for me this week. Now, as to next week, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be talking about because my plans may or may not come to fruition, and I don't want to make promises I can't keep. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. <laughs>